Welcome back to the Rhodes 12th Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rhodes, and this is a show dedicated to interviewing some of the world's top wealth builders in an effort to not only capture some of their journey, but more importantly, extract the successful tips, tricks, growth hacks, strategies, books, things that they have implemented that they feel have contributed to their success or separated them from the pack. This idea of solopreneurism or decentralization, Web3, the passion economy. I've also heard it called the creator economy. While the definition of these words will be slightly different, the commonality between them is this idea that the individual is taking control. And without jumping on my soapbox here in the introduction, this is a idea, this decentralization that has been emerging throughout all of 2021. And to be frank, it's where I've decided I'm going to put my chips going into next year. This week, I have what I will call a enabler of the creator economy, Jason Suhoy, who we talk lots about his journey here, but a couple of the big milestones, employee number five at 99designs, taking them from five employees to more than 120 employees. At that point, they're working with more than 1.6 million designers. Today, Jason is the co-founder and CEO of a really fascinating company called Supercast. Supercast is a platform that was built for podcasters, allowing them to create a premium subscriptions for their true fans to start paying on a monthly or annual basis. Over the next hour, Jason and I cover a lot of ground. We capture a few of his more interesting stories that I've not heard him share elsewhere from some of the scripts that he was given from his grandparents, how he deals with just life when both he and his wife are super creators. We talk about the creator economy as a whole and how individuals are starting to take control of their businesses, writers, authors, artists, podcasters, musicians. And finally, we wrap up with how you can start to think about your business and when you should think to implement some sort of subscription model and take control of your customer base. With that, I bring to you a podcast that I've been chasing down for several months and will reflect on for many months to come. Jason Suhoy. It's the road of the wealth. Yeah. I do it for health. Yeah. My kids and my spouse. Yeah. Financially sound. The bad day. Jason, man, first and foremost, I said this offline, but I think it's important to capture it while the mic is hot. I am very, very honored to have you on the show, man. Obviously, coming into this, the folks know I do loads of homework. I have enjoyed every single second of this sort of rabbit hole research I've gone through with you. You have done, you have seen some amazing things. It's like every article, every podcast that I picked up, I learned something new about what mm -hmm. you had done or what you had implemented. Really, it just blown away, man. It's an honor to have you here. I appreciate you finding an hour somehow to carve it out and give it to us. Of course. Yeah. Pleasure to chat and I'm looking forward to the conversation. For 
someone that is tuning in, one of my followers that have not followed you, typed in your name into the podcast app, but instead are coming in from the Roads to Wealth side, they may be asking, like, you know, who is this guy? They're coming off of a, a small introduction that I just got them ramped up for. But let's say we're talking at a bar, or we, we, I meet you outside somewhere. How do you introduce yourself? You know, who are you? What do you have going on? Yeah. So, I mean, usually the first thing that strikes people when I open my mouth is, of course, the fact that I'm a Kiwi, that I'm born and bred in New Zealand. I computer engineer by trade. That's, you know, what I studied. I studied, you know, a bunch of different things, explored computer science, you know, kind of going into, you know, biochemistry and genetics and a wide range of things at Tiger University in New Zealand where I studied, but it was really computer science that grabbed me and that set me down a path of going and working for technology companies. You know, at first it was for a tech multinational called Unisys. Loved that, you know, kind of like went into sales, but didn't you know quite grab me and I wanted to kind of like get closer to people get closer to kind of like problems that I could solve that you know would have an impact on you know kind of a tangible impact on on the people that I was serving so joint started to join smaller organizations joined a company called 99 designs in its fledgling days and that really set me down you know the startup path so mm-hmm. by that time I'd worked out that you know specializing in you know somewhere in biotech or in computer engineering you know like that wasn't what was going to set my world on fire you know like i i had an entrepreneurial streak in me that you know really found its home in startups and i just happened to be in the right place right time with 99 designs fifth employee there and joined as coo and spent a decade building out this global design marketplace that you know helps designers make money and it connects them with you know startups marketing departments agencies that need great design created whether it be logos t-shirts websites so on and really i felt that you know like that was my calling it was kind of hopefully not a once in a lifetime journey but just the experience of like building a team around a product you know bringing smart people together to create a business you know like create value you know for for people over the world launching new products, you know, that everything about the startup journey and figuring out our path was what, you know, kind of hugely excited and captivated me. And now, you know, leading a new startup called Supercast in in the podcast space, you know, so I would say, you know, very much a tech business person at heart, but, you know, one layer beneath that is, you know, all about solving interesting problems and, and problems which have an impact on everyday people. I love kind of like bringing together the technology and the business side of it, but working out, you know, like how do I decompose this and deconstruct this in such a way that it makes sense and is like Mm. readily understood by, you know, regular people. Yeah. You're, I said at the top, man, that the journey of like computer science to a few salesy roles, COO, head of growth, like it's, it's very... Your mind works in a fascinating way, man. Typically, the computer science... I mean, I've worked in the AWS, Amazon Web Services field for a long, long time. This is six and a half, seven and a half years now. I find the computer science technical folks are a bit more analytical and they're not able to, to comprehend, wrap their minds around growth. Yeah, you took 99designs from five to something like 120-ish employees. Well, I'll put a pin in this because there are a few questions I wanted to ask you about 99design. But as I work my way that way. I mean, one of the first things I do whenever I start my research is I want to figure out what's driving you. I want to figure out like, you know, 
everybody wants wealth. Everybody wants a million dollars, a billion dollars. Everybody wants that. But I think our why can be very, very different. And, and I think that kind of sets up our trajectory. And I was looking at sort of who and how you developed your money script. It's what Dr. Brad Klontz would talk about. I was just going into Google. I'm going into Wikipedia. I'm going into all these different areas. And a name that continued to pop up was Charles Suhoy. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to spend, we don't have to spend much time here, but maybe just a few seconds asking you about your grandfather and see if you had any comments, insight, stories, intel. What could you tell us about him? And maybe just something that you've pulled from, learned from him, just anything that comes to mind that you're, you're willing to share with us? Yeah, absolutely. This, you really did go deep in your research. So, you know, I really appreciate the question. Charles Suhoi, or as he was known, his, his real name was actually Choi Suhoi. He was actually my great great grandfather. So I'm five generations descended from Choi Suhoi. And he's the centerpiece of my very big kind of New Zealand originated family because. Everyone, every Chinese Suhoi in New Zealand is descended from that one guy, Choi Suhoi. So he was a gold miner in the late 1800s, uh, traveled from Guangzhou in China, where he was to, you know, seek out his, his wealth, to, to find his fortune. He went to California and in the gold rush days here, and then subsequently went to Australia following the gold rush, and then subsequently went to New Zealand because, you know, that was where the new frontier was of the gold rush. I'm kind of, interestingly, I'm doing the reverse journey. I've been from New Zealand to Australia to to now the (laughs) Bay Area. But, you know, he was just a, by the time he got to New Zealand, he'd worked out that, you know, gold mining is actually a terrible idea. You know, it's too speculative. You know, it's it's boom or bust and it's a lot of hard work. So he'd worked out by that time that actually the smarter thing to do is, is sell the picks and the shovels, you know, like to the gold miners. And so he set up trading enterprises, you know, he was importing and exporting back from New Zealand to China, you know, bringing out, you know, Chinese goods for the Chinese gold miners around him and then sending back, you know, like fungus to from, you could only get in New Zealand, you know, like for the Chinese consumers. But he was just a very well-respected businessman in both, to both Chinese people and Kiwis, New Zealanders. And, you know, was widely respected as just, you know, like a really honorable dude who would stand by his word and was always, you know, like just a pivotal person within the community. He did, you know, a bunch of different things. He set up kind of like societies. He would, you know, kind of like make sure, you know, people had what they needed, you know, like, and, you know, from a social perspective, from a community perspective, but he was also an innovator. And so when the gold ran out, he he looked at you know some of these harbor dredges that they had to scoop out the sand out of the middle of the harbor so that ships could get through. And he said, "Oh, I wonder if I could repurpose that to scoop out the gold from the middle of rivers." And he was able to successfully do that, which set off a second boom called the hydraulic sluicing gold boom, where all of a sudden you know all these companies sprang up making use of like these basically these buckets on a conveyor belt which could scoop out gold from the middle of rivers. So just an incredible guy who was able to kind of like spot opportunities and make sense of them. And yeah, there's a lot, I could go in a lot of different directions, you know, like he sent, you know, kind of gold miners who perished, you know, like back to China, they paid subscriptions, interestingly enough, <laughs> Q to Subaga, you know, he was innovated in the subscription space and gold miners would pay so that, you know, when they died, they could have their body sent back to China there's love in there. There's tragedy. There's, you know, like a, a whole different range of things to draw from Choi Su Hoi. But ultimately, the things that I take away 
but just his entrepreneurial spirit, you know, like his passion. And then the fact that, you know, like whatever values he carried, they underpin my entire family. You know, like there is now 600, 700 Zuhuis in New Zealand, all descended from him. And, you know, we hold reunion, we get together, you know, like we celebrate who he is and our connection to each other. So I will definitely be doing my bit to carry that forward. Yeah. We could spend the hour here. I had to several times catch myself because I started reading his story. Just the first sentence. This is on Wikipedia. Merchant, Chinese leader, gold dredger, and in the New Zealand Business Hall of Fame. Like As you start to pick this thing apart, I was getting lost, man. I could have spent our entire, all my research time here. For anybody that has some free time or if you like to do like the how I built this sort of deep mm. dive... I'll make sure that I tag some of the articles and things that I found in my research. I'll make sure I link that in the show notes. There's one other area that I wanted to pick apart or maybe talk about from just your family and how you manage things. And obviously, if this is, I want to talk a little bit about, and if you're uncomfortable with this, we can clip it out, is what I wanted to say. But I've just got off an interview with this woman, Monisha Misra, who she runs this boards by Mo, it's a charcuterie board business, mm-hmm. but that's her side hustle. She was named Entrepreneur of the Year for it, but she has two full time businesses. She's a nine to five saleswoman that she's running this, both of them six figure jobs. I run a podcast, a few advising roles. I'm doing this nine to five. My woman has a nine to five, a consulting job. I find there is a inverse relationship between the amount of work. And the time spent in a relationship, like the more hustles, the, the more work that I take on, the less time that I can spend in my family with Ashlyn or with my father, my brothers, like the, the less family time I can have. There's an inverse relationship. I talked to Mo about this on how Ashlyn and I have now implemented this rule of at the end of the day, for an hour to an hour and a half, right at dinner time, we carve out like no computers, no phones for one hour every weekday. We're going to sit in front of it. We're going to watch one show that just totally just decompresses and just gets us away from everything. I found you and your wife are this on steroids, this power couple on steroids. We, we've heard a little bit about your journey. <laughs> your wife founded Reclip It. She founded the Malaysian Global Innovation and Creativity Center. She's hiked Kilimanjaro. She was named Time Magazine Person of the Year a few years back. How do you guys have time for one another? Have you found something? What do you implement in your own household to make sure that your work and what you're doing, your journey doesn't overtake you or that you don't obsess over that? Do you have time for one another? Does that question make sense? It makes a lot of sense. This is the, I've got to say, uh, these are great questions. This is, I, thank I can, you very much. You know, I'm already enjoying this conversation and I can tell it's just going on tangents that, you know, I haven't previously ever got anywhere near on, you know, a certain oh, other podcast beautiful. and and stuff that, quite frankly, I love to talk about. So, you know, thank you on behalf of my wife. Yeah. You know, like she is, she's an amazing person. You know, she's, you know, accomplished a lot, you know, and she, you know, it's just a wonderful human being. And certainly, you know, in terms of like things that, you know, I can hold hand on heart and say, yeah, I nailed that. You know, certainly, you know, marrying her uh, counts at the very, very top of that list. So I'm very much punching above my weight there. Look, I would say it's the balance is really hard. It, how do we carve out the time? You know, one, my one word answer would be kids. <laughs> so we have two young kids, uh, you know, a three-year-old and a 
one and a half year old, you know, we've had to hire a full-time nanny, you know, to, to be able to, or a live nanny, you know, to be able to, you know, just to basically make sure that we have enough time to not drop any balls. I, as you know, run a startup. My wife also runs her own startup. You know, she's got a startup now that she's building on the side in the uh, gut infant microbiome space. And so, you know, though we each have our individual teams, they're each, you know, uh, each have our individual things to prove and, you know, the visions for our businesses. And what that means is that, you know, during working hours, yeah, it's all hands to the pump. You know, everybody, you know, is, but, you know, certainly startup life, I guess, you know, you can argue there's a lot of circumstances where you can't, your mind just doesn't stop, you know, like when it comes to entrepreneurship and creating a startup and there really isn't, you know, kind of much time off. But the one thing that, where you you're able to flick a switch off at least for us is kid time you know like and and that centers around dinner time so certainly you know like between you know six and the time that we get them to bed which is typically eight thirty nine o'clock you know like that's that's all about the kids you know like and that's very important to both of us you know we've you know obviously heard a little bit about you know kind of my family background and you know it's really important for us that you know like we are able to like ground them in the same values and you know screen time and connection all that sort of stuff is really important to us we used to also you know pre-kids we also used to yeah like invest a lot in our relationship you know and making sure that you know we have the time to connect i would say that is the trickier part, you know, for, for where we are in our life, you know, because we're we're trying to cram everything in, you know, like to this period of life, I would say, you know, in that we're yeah. both early stage startups. We've got four startups under our roof, essentially, the two businesses <laughs> and the two kids. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot going on. And where I would say, and, you know, my wife would agree, where we are, you know, like have less intentional intentional effort right now is, as I would say, you know, like under the relationship between the two of us, that's the thing that, you know, kind of like gets the short end of the stick right now. Yeah. And it's not an issue, you know, like for us, it's not like, you know, like our relationship is falling apart, you know, far from it. It's just that we are both conscious that if you don't invest in it, then you don't move it forward. If you totally. don't work it, you know, like kind of bringing it together, then actually it's, you know, probably starting to slip apart. So, you know, I would say we, you know, it's all about the kids now based on, you know, their age and also the age of our startups, but there will come a time where, you know, we recognize that, yeah, no, like we want to bring kind of the focus back to to our relationship. Yeah. There's such a weird, happy medium, such a weird break even point that I don't think many people get to think about that until they start to inherit, like, I'm going to pick up this side hustle and I'm going to try to write this book and I'm going to do this. And then all of a sudden it's like the things that were fixed or the things that were sort of structured start to fall apart, right? Like your relationship starts to get a little iffy or you miss a few games with the kids. And the next time things start to discombobulate and I'm the only one traveling in my household with two people, four startups, two startups, two kids, all these different directions and ways you could pull you. I really appreciate you you sharing that. I think folks get a lot of value out of that for sure. I am going to do my best to refocus us and, and talk a little bit about 99 designs. And then I'll spend the bulk of my time, the rest of my time here in the the podcasting space, which is where you've sort of pivoted and, and decided to spend your time. If I'm taking us through your journey, I found you joined 99 designs, employee number five. You talked about this COO, head of growth, took it to more than 120 employees, 1.6 million designers. Employee number five, how did you find that opportunity? And let's just start there. How'd that opportunity come about? Yeah, good question. It came about because I was working for the parent company to 99designs for only three months. And it's kind of an interesting thing for me because 
99 Designs at the time was essentially, you know, two engineers and designer and the founder of this group of companies called SitePoint at the time that I joined SitePoint in another division. So it was a, a little agency called SitePoint Solutions. So the role that I initially got was actually to be the GM of this little agency that was, you know, building websites and internets and things for other people. But there were four businesses, you know, in that same building, you know, one of which was SitePoint, the agency I was looking after, another business called Flipper, which is a, a marketplace for buying and selling websites. And then, you know, this group of three, you know, like in this meeting room, one meeting room, you know, kind of building out the very earliest stages of Noyon Designs. And I was just, you know, kind of like walking around the building, meeting people, you know, like trying to understand what everyone was doing. And I just, I found myself gravitating over to that little glass meeting room and just talking to the guys and, you know, asking them what they were working on. And the idea for 99 Designs, you know, like just, just seemed so powerful. You know, this idea that design, you could get order a design, you know, a logo, a t-shirt, a website online, and people would compete to deliver you the best design, you know, like what an amazing idea. And it just really flipped the model of you know getting something designed on its head out of the gate they already had the crowdsourcing idea i, I was going to ask was that a pivot that that the company had made but out of the gate three or four people they had already had the the crowdsourcing approach well i mean where it came from and this is you know kind of like the whole genius of like how the thing eventuated and and where i first learned the concept of mvp or minimum viable product and really what that means is, you know, if anybody doesn't know, it's, it's, it's a startup phrase for working out like what is the minimum possible thing you can do to test that this has legs, that, you know, this idea totally. has legs, that, you know, what's rather than over-investing in a platform or technology or whatever, it's like, can I just build something with like a form, you know, like a Google form? Can I get someone to pay a dollar, you know, a couple of dollars for this thing? Because, you know, if I can get enough people to do it in those early days, even if it's like sticky tape and string, then that proves that, you know, like I've potentially got a business here in my hands. And so for, with 99 Designs, it actually wasn't, you know, the founder or anyone's idea at all. It was people in the forum of SitePoint that were competing against each other to prove who was the better designer. You know, a bunch of, basically, mm -hmm. SitePoint was the site for web designers and web developers in the early days to share, you know, like, and read tutorials and hang out in this forum and work out how they can be better at their craft. You can almost think of it like as kind of like Reddit for, you know, developers and designers in the early days. In this one forum thread, designers just started competing against each other to prove who was the better designer. They called it Photoshop Tennis. Somebody would come up with an idea, you know, a fictional brief, and then two people, two other people would, you know, basically try to outcompete each other to produce the best logo. And then the very earliest iteration was another designer, a web designer, rocking up to this forum and saying, hey, I actually need a logo for my client. I don't do logos. How about I put up $100 and whoever can design the best logo gets the money. Wow. And so these designers were like, hell yeah, you know, like we're doing this for fun. You know, like I'd absolutely, you know, like have a shot at winning this. And so this fun thing, this this forum thread started turning into this place where you could get, you know, like amazing design and where you didn't have to like pick and choose from designers' portfolios. You could literally rock up and go, hey, I need this, go for it. And then, you know, a few days later, you'd be seeing all of these designs flowing in from all over the world. And so the MVP version, getting back to, you know, kind of that concept, was for SitePoint to just lock that forum thread and charge $10 to post the job to it. That's all they did. And wow, people flocked to it. You know, it just validated it. it just, people were like, okay, cool. Like, sweet. You know, like now I can go here and there is this design forum thread where I can get cool stuff designed. And then 
that grew. And so they turned it into $20 to post and it grew. And so it ended up being a tab on sitepoint.com specifically focused on design contests. And that turned into eventually just realizing that there was a whole business opportunity here that was bigger than SitePoint, you know, in terms of, you know, it should be separated out. And that's when 99designs.com was born. And those three, the people in the room were, were just kind of like getting rolling at that point. That made my brain buzzy. I don't know if you ever get that, but like when you hear a good story, I get that on Shark Tank sometimes. So like you hear a good story, you're like, oh man, that is the best. I love the like, that was demand driven uh, at its finest. Like your customers were building a product in front of you. All you had to do was go in and put a very lightweight paywall in front of them, which by the way, kind of correlation, we don't have to get there yet, but what you're implementing now, right? Like there is existing audience existing. I think there is demand for what you've built. And now you're coming in and putting a very lightweight potential paywall in front of it, which is which is interesting. Mm. Let me ask you this. We could probably spend maybe at some point I could have you back on and we'll spend like 45 minutes unpacking the, the journey of 99 designs because Shit, man, that the company is giant. It sold last year. Like it's worth it's worth spending some time on. For those that are tuning in, if you've been in the entrepreneur, solopreneur space, you've definitely heard of 99 Designs, needed a logo or design help. If you subscribe to Tim Ferriss, you definitely know of 99 Designs. I wanted to know how that sponsorship came about. Do you remember landing Tim Ferriss? Did he come to you? Did you guys go to him? How did that come about? So Tim was an early user of 99designs. So he he used 99designs for first for the to get some ideas for the cover of his second book, The 4-Hour Body. Essentially, you know, we got on a, hopped on a call with him and he wasn't blown away by, you know, the options that he got from his publisher, uh, the designers of his publisher. So he was like, well, you know, like why don't I run a contest and like see if, you know, the designers at, at large and the 99designs community can do better. And so that was, you know, like his first taste of the product. He's gone on to use 99 Designs, you know, many times to get various numbers of things designed. But it was through that and, you know, kind of like getting product feedback with him and, you know, just you know, building out certain parts of the platform that we developed a relationship early on. And then when it came time and, you know, when he launched his podcast, Tim Ferriss Show, and he was looking for his first sponsors, you know, it was just a natural fit for us. Just... Was that Ferris effect real? I think that's what he calls it. I could be butchering that, but there's times if he mentions a product or something and on his podcast or in his five bullet Fridays, typically that company just explodes, right? Like they like sell out a product and they just can't keep up. Was that a good sort of customer acquisition channel? Yeah, incredible acquisition channel for us. I can I can imagine. His show reads, you know, are super authentic. Specifically, the yeah. Ninety Nine Designs one. You know, the, everybody remembers the fact that Ninety Nine Designs was on the Tim Ferriss show, and it's because he just does such a good job of articulating, you know, the stuff that he uses and why you should use it, and you know, the impact that it's had, you know, like for some best. part of his journey. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, you know, he genuinely, you know, kind of loves Ninety Nine Designs and can speak, you know, authentically to it and the product and how it's like waking up on Christmas and seeing all of these, you know, designs in your inbox. But genuinely, it's it's also su- just such a great fit with his persona and his audience. Like everybody, mm. I think he ran an ad-free experiment, you know, at one stage and everybody was For like, sure. no, like we bring love your back. ads. Yeah, bring the ads back because that's how we get to find out, you know, what Tim's using, what Tim loves, you know, whether it's, you know, his, his diets, his supplements, you know, whatever it is, his online services, 
people, you know, tune in to be able to see what Tim uses and to be able to get a little bit of that themselves as well. So yeah, fabulous acquisition channel. And and I think, you know, I'm pretty sure 99 still sponsors Tim Ferriss' show, the Tim Ferriss show to this day. So you go on, I'm fast forwarding us to you exiting 99 designs. And at this point, you've seen, we, we've called it out a few times, lots of growth within you know internal employee, as well as just the amount of revenue, the amount of projects that you guys have landed in that time. I'm looking at your, your LinkedIn here, 11 years you're able to spend there. I'm not saying anything secret by saying, you know, as a C level with the type of growth that you guys saw, I'm sure through that journey, you had the chance to build a little bit of wealth. But I saw just in my research, you didn't stay down long. During that little lag there between 99designs and Supercaster, as we're trying to go through this, did you have any downtime and did you splurge at all? Did you like enjoy that level up moment? Right. Because as an entrepreneur, you grind so hard. You're you're thinking about building this business and you kind of did it. And at the beginning you said, hopefully I didn't just do it one time, right? But you did it. And then it was like immediately you got back into it. You did did you allow yourself to celebrate? How did you celebrate? Did you go buy a house card? You got what did you do? Did you splurge at all? No, I was straight into it. So I actually I actually left 99 designs a little bit before the acquisition, so at the kind of at the beginning of 2020, and then you know, kind of September was when the exit to Vistaprint, or sure. the acquisition by Vistaprint happened. Yeah, like you know, 11 year journey. You know, there, you know, there were lots of milestones along the way. You know, like of which you know, I guess becoming part of a bigger story. You know, like is is just like another one of them. Sure. You know, in the early days that, you know, they came, you know, fast and furious. It was, you know, like winning the web. We were bootstrapped for the first three years, you know, like we under our own steam. So like so many great, you know, moments of winning the Webby Awards through to, you know, raising our first round, of, you know, with Excel, $35 million Series A three years in. You know, at the time there was, you know, no venture capital at all in, in Australia. So, you know, just unheard of. So, you know, that was a kind of a great validating moment. Yeah, just lots of, you know, kind of moments. But, you know, I would say connecting back to the relationship thing, there were, you know, just a couple of moments where, you know, I took a break. I was able to restore a little bit of that balance. And the one that I'm thinking most of was, you know, after Cheryl and I got together and we realized that, you know, she was pregnant, you know, just pretty soon after we got married. And both of us, you know, like to your point, you know, just been like, go, 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 you know, up until that point, you know, for, for the vast majority of our careers, I've, you know, never taken a career break. It's always been, you know, one job to the next to the next. And so when she was pregnant, we realized that, you know, like this was our last opportunity for it to be, you know, just the two of us. And I actually took a seven month sabbatical to basically make sure that, you know, like we were able to make the most of, you know, that pre-kid time nice so you know we got in some travel you know like we went overseas and started you know just to like you know just to 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 make sure we had that time to set down you know like a good foundation before everything gets murky and messy and and you know just make sure that you know we have a good solid connection with each other so i would say you know like that time is where you know we were both very you know conscious about taking a break and then when i left 99 designs there was nothing it was like literally I finished work one day and then the next day I was flying to LA to jump on a stage to podcast movement, like the, the biggest industry conference. And I was on the keynote as a sponsor of the conference talking animal. about, <laughs> like, yeah, it was like, okay, 
99 Designs t-shirt off like on a Tuesday on a Wednesday putting down I'm putting on the Supercast t-shirt and keynoting. That's awesome, man. I'm glad you're able to take a sabbatical even if it was before the leave. Like you said, I think I don't know, man. There's this treadmill that we're all chasing. And I've had folks talk about it here on the show of you want to have a million, you want to have 3 million, you want to retire early, you want to do this. And then once you get there, you're like, shit, now what? Right. And I hadn't heard you talk about it, but I felt like I was seeing that as I read your story of like, you put one thing down. And like you said, the next day you were picking the next thing up. I'm glad to hear, and I hadn't read that you were able to take that seven month break. And I could imagine that's more than enough. I just did a six day break to Mexico. And that was enough for me. When I came back, I was like, oh, I'm about to rock this. Like I was ready to go. So I could imagine seven months was plenty of time to unplug, get your head right, get the relationships right, get everything back because more chaos is coming down the pipe, especially kids, new job. Like There's lots coming your way. I think the seven months probably did you pretty good. Well, I will say that seven month, I mean, we definitely like jam packed that into because, you know, we actually gave birth to, you know, our first in New Zealand. So we like flew back to New Zealand, you know, set everything up there, you know, and the reason why we did that is that we were renovating, doing addition on our house here in, in California. So <laughs> when I say we took a sabbatical, it wasn't all, you know, kind of like stress-free or, you know, whatever it was. You're getting shit together. Yeah, yeah. It was like, <laughs> this all needs to be done by this date. <laughs> I want to tee up this question of why podcasting, but let me unpack let me unpack where this question comes from. I saw as I read through your journey, I found one of the big influences. Uh, maybe this is at 99 Designs, maybe this is right as you were joining Supercast, but I read one of the big influences was this blog post from Mark Andreessen. And it's about the passion economy. I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes. The title of the blog is The Passion Economy and the Future of Work. By Legion at A16Z, right? The Legion, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, A16. Yeah. The gist of this piece is there are, people are migrating from the gig economy to the passion economy. And originally, I was going to ask, are there other areas that the passion economy is surfacing or that we're seeing this migration of people? I want to rattle off a few that I've already explored on the podcast. I had an artist, Keegan Hall, he may be the best pencil artist I've ever seen. Definitely that I've ever seen. He's maybe the best in America. He's out of Seattle. He only draws with pencils. And he talked about how in the art field, you typically display your art in a gallery. And then there is a 50-50, most of the time, 50-50 split. When your art is sold, you get 50-50. Gallery gets 50. You get 50% the first time. And then after that, you see nothing. We are seeing this migration to NFTs mm -hmm. where someone can put an underlying, I want 5% or 7% or 10%. And moving forward, every time that artist's artwork sells, she gets 10%, 10%, 10%. So they're not making much money off the first sell, but on the resell market, the third, fourth, fifth time, they're making loads of money. There are folks that write newsletters that are filling freelance work or that are getting a fixed salary that have moved over to Substack and had their favorite fans, folks that only read their work, follow them over to Substack mm -hmm. and pay them month over month to start subscribing to their work. The singers are begging for this. Artists are begging for this. Musicians are begging for this right now. Spotify has 8 million artists on its platform. 14,000 of them are making more than 50,000. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is making less. Mm -hmm. Out of 8 million, 14,000 are making 50. Everybody else is making less. They are in desperate need of decentralization, of finding ways to make money off of their fans, people that focus on them. I say all that to say the passion economy, this 
field, this market, I just showed three or four examples, this taking over. Why did you decide to focus on podcasting? Of all the spaces, all this movement, what about podcasting has you so excited? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, for me personally, you know, we touched on Tim Ferriss, and that was actually my really my first foray, my first connection into podcasting. You know, it was one because, you know, like, yeah, absolutely like Tim was a great acquisition channel, but two, through listening to our own ads and listening to Tim's show, I really got captivated and I really got swept up in, in that kind of like connection that you can have with a podcast host when you're listening to them mm. repeatedly. And so, you know, I started adopting his diet. I started adopting his workout strategies. You know, like I was going to the gym and, you know, like swinging kettlebells because that's what Tim says, you know, is one of the most effective routines. And so, you know, that's where I just really discovered my love of podcasting. And then, you know, towards the tail end of the 99 Designs days, I got connected with Andrew Wilkinson up in Canada, who runs a group of companies called Tiny. And he had actually, with some of the agencies that he owns, had worked with Sam Harris to build out Sam Harris's subscription model for his, his podcast. It's called Making Sense. And just seen enormous success with monetizing directly from listeners, which, you know, this is going back three years now. So, you know, at the time, the idea of bringing subscription or paying for a podcast subscription was totally foreign. And so, you know, off the, the back of that success, the question was, well, you know, is that Sam's podcast? Is that Sam's audience? Is that, you know, just kind of a fluke and, you know, no other podcast would be able to do this? And again, so, you know, taking that MVP approach, the next creators were Peter Atia and Rhonda Patrick. Can we recreate that success with, you know, two other podcasters? And sure enough, you know, yes, you know, like the answer was yes, that there were people in there and audience that were quite happily willing to pay, you know, monthly subscription price to get a premium version of their podcast, a premium audio feed. And so they saw tremendous growth and it just, it really unlocked for them the ability to hire people onto their team, to be able to do more research. They're both in the health and longevity space and to be able to, you know, bring more value to the people that already know and love their show and now feel like they're able to own a part of it, you know, like it's enabled, you know, what they get to be so much more because they're able to basically get behind Ronda and get behind Peter and, you know, be a, a part of the team. And so that's what Supercast is all about. It's all about taking subscription, which, you know, we know, you know, from all of the subscription TV services that we're all subscribed to, you know, we know that this is a huge consumer trend and they're bringing it to this medium, this rich medium of podcasting where, the connection between you as a listener and the host is just so strong, you know, like, and, you know, so the idea of, and, you know, just to kind of like dovetail to NFTs and, you know, where everything in the creator economy is going, I think this idea of innovating on the idea of ownership is immensely powerful. You know, mm -hmm. we are definitely seeing it with Supercast. In June, for example, we launched a show called Breaking Points with Crystal and Saga. It's a three-day-a-week political and news commentary show. And the whole premise of it and why it's so different right now is that Crystal is on the left and Saga is on the right from a political spectrum point of view. And, and you know, as you know, like with mainstream media, everything's so polarized these days. You know, it's it's either like way left or way right. And it's it's just kind of like hard to get, you know, a balanced conversation where people stay sane and you know like kind of like rational and able to you know just kind of talk about things peacefully 
But that's what breaking points hold. And that's what people love about the show so much. And so when you know they launched, they were able to actually get, you know, 10,000 subscribers paying $10 a month in 48 hours. 600 of them paid $1,500 each as, as a one-time, you know, lifetime membership. And why do they do that? You know, it's because they want to feel ownership over this podcast, the future direction. They, they believe that this podcast is bringing good into this world and they want to get behind it. And they, they want to be able to say, yeah, like I'm a thousand true fans. I'm one of those, you know, like I am one of the people that helped you get off the ground. And I think, you know, like whether it's Supercast or NFTs or whatever, like we're just seeing this tidal wave of people wanting to not only, you know, just consume content, but to get behind content and feel like they're Mm -hmm. able to contribute to bringing something good into the world. Yeah. I think that's one of the things I'm hearing as I hear your early adopters, like Rhonda Patrick, I would consume anything that she publishes. I I even took, I mean, this tells you how bought in I am to her. I even took my 23andMe data and pumped it into her system that she gives you like extra details on everything that's going on. Like anything that she does, I'm willing to support it. And so as she builds this, I'm going to give you guys access to you know, once a month and ask me anything, you can submit your questions in this forum or you're going to get early access to my stuff. I will happily give her 10, 15, 20 bucks a month and let me digest anything else, all the research that you do. There's something about having that super personal connection. And I started this with why podcasting. I also think podcasting is so damn new. People hear about the ramp and growth. I wrote down some numbers because I want people to hear how silly it sounds. When I started this podcast, this is February of 2020, I interviewed Dory Clark and she wrote this book, Entrepreneurial You. In her book, she says something like there's 750 or 700,000 podcasts live. By the time I interviewed her, there were 900,000 live. Mm -hmm. I typed it in right before this podcast, before we went live, how many podcasts are in the world there are over 2 million podcasts live, which just seems like an astronomical number, especially as you think about there are only 900,000 a couple of years ago. But there are a few stats that I think are worth calling out. And I want to ask, what separates the great from the average? That's, that's where I'm headed with you here. I was looking at this research, Pew Research, shows 41% of Americans listens to podcasts today. It's compared to over 80% listen to FM radio. There are 2 million podcasts, but 1.9 billion websites. There are 2 million podcasts, but 600 million blogs. So we are still so far behind other mediums, content mediums. There's no way to search engine optimize audio. There's no way to search audio as far as going out and finding good podcasts. I think people are starting to find ways to put SEO on page and transcribe their articles, write blog posts, but it's still very, very difficult to go to put your content out there and have folks find you. It's just, it's the podcast medium is extremely, extremely new. Saying all of that, we talked about the folks that are having success on your platform are those that have extremely deep connections with the people that are following them. What else? What separates their 200 million folk or their 2 million podcasts out there? I don't know if all 2 million would have success if they jumped on your platform and said, hey, listeners, start you know paying me 10 bucks a month. What else? What other common themes are you seeing between Sam Harris, Rhonda Patrick, Tim Ferriss, like th- these other folks that have implemented that sort of pay me monthly for content type of model? 
Yeah. And to be clear, you know, Sam has his own platform and Tim Ferriss isn't actually on Supercast. It's, sure. yeah, yeah, you know, Rhonda and Peter. But, you know, there's really like a whole range of different creator types. There is independent podcasters. And, you know, like some of them, you know, are all in on subscription as Peter and Rhonda are. Uh, others, you know, like have a blend of models. So Shane Parrish of The Knowledge Project, for example, you know, he has both subscription, so the premium version of the podcast, as well as advertising on his podcast. Canada Land, you know, like a whole network of shows, yeah, again, has, you know, the combination of ads and subscription. I would say the indicators that, you know, somebody will have, you know, like really strong success with Supercast, um, mostly about the engagement that, you know, mm. listeners have with the show. You know, like, yeah, there are 2 million podcasts that are now being created, but you can imagine, you know, there's the whole spectrum of, you know, you've got Joe Rogan at one end, you know, like where people will play a three-hour, you know, <laughs> they'll listen to a three-hour episode, you know, even though they have to go to Spotify now to, to go and consume it, <laughs> through to, you know, like people that, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, which, you know, just getting started. And because everybody's like, it's like a, building a startup, right? you got to find your way. In the beginning, it's like shouting into the wind, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, you've started a podcast. So, you know, this as much as anybody. Totally. In the beginning, you know, it's... A one-way conversation and you know you don't get much feedback you know that as a result of that one-way conversation and you've got to iterate to figure out what is working and so i think the moment where subscription or really any form of monetization becomes an opportunity is when you've found that voice and when you've found you know a core group of people who repeatedly listen to your show and give you feedback and you've you know you've got some sort of a dialogue with them and you've just got the idea that it's starting to work, you know, like uh, centered in your mind. And so I think that is kind of like the bare minimum for operating on it. And then, you know, beyond that, there are a lot of shows that get like when they post on social media, for example, you know, like that get lots of comments and suggestions and listener feedback, good or bad, you know, criticism, you know, the whole works. Canada Land Jesse, for example, you know, he takes a pretty opinionated stance, you know, like on, uh, you know, kind of topics in the news and he gets tons of blowback, you know, like when he goes up and he has an unpopular opinion, people come out and, you know, point out the shortcomings of his thinking, you know, left, right and center. But that means people care, right? That means people are moved, you know, like, and, you know, they're either going to love you or hate you, but nonetheless, you know, like they're listening to you. And that's the kind of engagement that we look for to see, you know, like, do people care enough about your show? Because if they do, there's a pretty good chance that you can get 5% of them to pay you a monthly subscription. And really all of the math comes from that Kevin Kelly's idea of a thousand true fans. You know, like you don't need Mm. everybody to subscribe to your show. You know, there's not any customers on Supercast where we slam down the paywall and say, okay, what was free yesterday? You've now got to pay five bucks a month for. That's not the model that, you know, like we recommend. It's more about the thousand true fans model where if you've got a thousand listeners, we're pretty sure that there'll be 50 of them that love you so much that uh, they would happily you know, pay a monthly fee. Do you know who Ariel Hawani is? Uh, Are you a UFC fan? No. Ariel Hawani is like the top UFC reporter. He was at ESPN for a really, really long time. And he recently just left ESPN to kind of start his own thing. He went on My First Million recently Mm -hmm. with Sam Parr and, and Sean Peary. And they were asking him why is he not behind a paywall? Or why has he not started? Like They're giving him all of these hustles, all these ideas. They're like, dude, you're following this giant. You can make so much more money. Why are you not doing this? And 
he gave an answer that I connected with. He's like, I'm struggling. I feel guilty charging my fans. Mm-hmm. I have people that Helwani saying this guy, people, you know, he releases like three hour videos on YouTube. I connect with this because I, I just had Andrew Warner on the show of Mixergy.com. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of the show, I was talking about this master class that I wanted to start. And he said, dude, you know what you need to do? You need to start making money with the podcast. And I thought about that for months. And in the back end of my podcast, as I'm decompressing, I'm giving my summary. When Andrew's not there, I said something about like, I don't want to charge you guys. I don't want to charge you as the listeners because I feel like it puts a different relationship between me and you and like there's this trust. And what I'm asking for is help me break down this barrier. Like there are going to be folks tuning in that are writers, artists, podcasters, whatever the case, a creator that they feel this guilt that they've been running a free type of subscription or they've been pumping out free content. And now they're going to introduce a paid subscription or something, you know, a paid channel. Can you help us get over that hurdle? If, if, if you have anything, if anything comes to mind? Yeah, it's a really important question. And we have a blog post actually on Supercast that is really about like the psychology of the ask and how hard that is. You know, like it's, it's not a surprise at all. You know, like this is something that creators definitely face it. And it, and it really gets to kind of like deep ideas about self-worth, right? And, you know, asking for money and, and guilt and who am I, you know, like to go out and ask people to, you know, fund the work that I'm doing. And there's a lot of ways that you can tackle that, you know, like obviously deep-seated psychological issues, you know, like there's this no, you know, like silver bullet, you know, to solve those things. But I think, you know, maybe, you know, one way of thinking about it is, you know, what is money really? Money really is, you know, a way for people to vote in a lot of ways, you know, about how resources in the world and the universe, you know, should be allocated. You know, it's like when a startup goes and raises money, you know, like to build a product. It's because a group of investors got behind it and said, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, like, I think that should exist in the world. And, you know, like, here's an allocation of resources to go and create that thing. And maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. And, you know, but, but you know, like, based on what we know today, we think that's a good idea. And, you know, I think a podcast and whether it's running ads or using something like subscription, you know, to, to monetize directly from your audience, you can think of it in much the same way, you know, like it, your listeners have been consuming your content for free. That was almost your your MVP, right? That's you getting a product into the world and seeing whether it resonates. And so, you know, much to, you could almost loop back here to the, the 99 design story. What happens? What would happen if you put down, you know, $10 paywall, $5 paywall, and you said, hey, you know, like, how much do you enjoy my content? How much value does this bring to you? And, you know, like, would you, would you pay to support that work? You know, I think this notion that podcasts are and should and, you know, will always be free, you know, we're rapidly moving on from that time. Yeah. And, you know, quite frankly, like, that's the way mediums evolve. You know, in the beginning, web, the web was just web pages all for free. Like, all of those blogs and, you know, websites that you mentioned, you know, the, the billions of them, a lot of those, the, the blogs, you know, they were free. And, you know, your only hope of monetizing at a certain point in time was AdSense, you know, banners, ugly banners. And now you look at the web and there's just the proliferation of different ways that you can make money, whether it's subscriptions, courses, ads, products, you know, you name it. So I think I think it's an eventuality. And I think, you know, we're in a magical time now where consumers are rapidly growing in appreciation for the work that a creator does and the fact that it is not just one person, Josh, rocking up to a microphone and, you know, like uh, talking with with a, you know, a weird and wacky guest for an hour. 
Man, I'm looking at my time. I could go another two hours with you. I've got enough questions to fill as long as you'd give me, but I'm so honored to have you on, man. I hope that at some point you'd be willing to come back on. We'd love to have your wife on. We'll have the whole family reunion. You guys are impressive. And this has been, it's been such a pleasure, man. I hope the folks listening, I'm going to do a summary here after the show, but I, I just, it's on my mind and I want to make sure that I call this out. I hope the folks listening are hearing this. We're talking about podcasting, but I started this with the creator economy and this passion economy. I started with that with intention. And I want to show that this is taking over, not just in podcasting, but a broad takeover. And if you are a creator, a creative in a field, this is coming if it's not there already. And it's worth exploring and finding ways to start taking ownership of what you produce, what you own. There are lots of folks out there that are walking examples of this, you, Jack Butcher, folks that are doing NFTs, go out there and explore this option. For the folks that have tuned in that like what you have going on, man, they enjoyed this this conversation. They want to get a hold of you or potentially just consume more of, of what you produce. What are the best ways to make that happen? So I'm on Twitter at jsewhoy, J-S-E-W-H-O-Y. And yeah, you can also email me at jason at supercast.com. Beautiful. For the listeners, I will have Jason's info as well as all of the links to the blogs and pieces that we've discussed today in the show notes. I will be back here after I let Jason go with a quick wrap up of the episode. If you're leaving with him, thank you all for tuning in this week. Take some time this week. Give someone that you love a call. Tell them you love them. And as always, stay on your grind. First and foremost, just as always, I have to give Jason a Huge shout out. The man, his entire family is so, so impressive. And it was a real honor to have him on the show here for an hour. I hope to close the loop, maybe have the opportunity to chat with his wife here in the months to come. But this was an incredible experience, an incredible time. After last week's episode with Dune and who's a top five podcaster. It's really awesome to sort of zoom in on the monetization aspect here and really get a very different approach, very different perspective. If you recall, Dune took the traditional advertising route with a very untraditional format. She landed an advertiser before she ever released an episode. This approach here that we've talked about with Supercast and this premium subscription model is something that Dune would probably implement and crush being a top five podcaster now in the the entrepreneur space. While we covered loads of information in the show today, all of which can be found on my notes or on my website, roadstowealth.com, this idea of when to implement is something that I wanted to circle a couple more times before we just totally logged off this episode. I'm sure most of you, many of you have heard of Kevin Kelly's article or blog post that he wrote back in 2008, this idea of a thousand true fans. And in my opinion, that idea of a thousand true fans could not ring any more true today. Out of the 7.8 billion people in the world, If you can find 1,000 of them to give you $100 a year via subscription model, that is $100,000 living. I, since then, that's 2008, have seen an article from Lee Jin. This is A16, who I believe 
both of which were mentioned in the interview today, challenged the idea of a thousand true fans talking about how in today's creator economy with the adoption of social media platforms, the ability to up your skill set so quickly, you could expect something closer to $1,000 a year per customer. And if that's the case, you only need 100 true fans. And this is not just for podcasting. This is if you're a artist, a writer, a blogger, if you fix motorcycles or you wash cars, this passion economy is coming. And those of us that are willing to accept it, adopt it early, get ahead of this, will absolutely reap the rewards. This is where I believe the puck is headed in 2022, and it is where I'm going to try to make a few bets and put some chips. We will see if that pays off until next week. I hope you all have a great week. Christmas is less than two weeks away. I'm sending you all as listeners good vibes. I hope that while things pick up in the sales world, I hope that each of you are able to slow things down at some point and give those close to you the attention, the love that the holiday season demands or asks of you. But more importantly, as always, stay on your grind. Gotta come with us. Shit. So, Diggy, you starting to stand on. Make the fuss off when you land raw. Make you put some new friends on. It's the road of the world. Uh, I do it for help. Yeah. My kids and my spouse. Yeah. I financially sound. Bad dad. It's the road of the world. Yeah. I do it for help. Yeah. My kids and my spouse. Yeah. I financially sound. You the bad dad.